At this time, uh, we'll turn in our Bibles to Psalm number 50. Psalm number 50, and I'm glad to be with you once again. It's been a blessing for me to visit a couple times and to exhort before you. And this is a psalm that I, I taught at my church a few weeks ago, actually just a couple weeks ago, and it was a tremendous blessing to me. And so I, I thought that I would share that with you this morning. Psalm number 50. It's the first psalm of Asaph in the Bible, and you'll notice this is a psalm of, of judgment, but we realize when we read this psalm, uh, the point that I want to make today is that God treats his people differently than he treats his enemies. And I think that in this psalm, although this describes judgment, we find uh, a, lot of, a lot of peace and a lot of uh, consolence and comfort for our souls. So Psalm number 50, the psalm of Asaph. And I'm reading out of the Old King James here. It says in verse 1, The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken, and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, our God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call out to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor the goats, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine in the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to, to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldst take my covenant in thy mouth, seeing thou hatest instruction, and casteth away my words behind thee? When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him, and hast been a partaker with adulterers. Thou shalt give thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frameth deceit. Thou sittest, and speak, thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thy mother's son. These things thou hast done, and I kept silence, though thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation or his steps aright will I show the salvation of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would bless us this morning with your presence. I pray that you would help us to understand uh, your word this morning. I pray that you would give us insight to know that you deal with us as with children, that you do rebuke us for our sins, but that you do not cast us away. I pray that all we do this morning would be glorifying to you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
When your children uh, misbehave or are disobedient in public, you, you punish them. But you don't deal with them and treat them as you would with children misbehaving who are not yours. That's because you love your own children. That's because they are very dear to you. And you punish them not because you hate them, not because you are angry with them, although sometimes we, we can be angry with our children, but we punish them because we love them and because we want them to become functioning members of, of society. And this is not a, a perfect analogy, but this is a, a very correspondent to what we find here in Psalm 50. We see here in, in the early verses that God is coming in judgment. We see uh, specifically in verse 4, He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. God is coming in judgment. And specifically, he's, he's coming to judge both his people. And as we'll see later in the psalm, he's coming to judge his enemies as well. And, and God judges, he's the judge of the whole earth, and he starts with his own people. But we'll see that even though God judges and reproves his own people, he does so in a very different way than he does with those who are his enemies. He treats his people, he rebukes his people, he rebukes us as Christians in a w- different way than he does with the world. I think that can provide a great comfort for us this morning. And so as we look at this psalm, it can be broken down into four parts, and I'll give you those quickly. We see in verses 1 through 6, the call to assemble for judgment. The call to assemble for judgment. Then in verses 7 through 15, we have the rebuke of the saints. In verses 16 through 21, we have the rebuke of the wicked. And then in verse... uh, Verses 22 through 23, we have a closing warning and a promise. Again, verses 1 through 6, the call to assemble for judgment. 7 through 15, the rebuke of the saints. 16 through 21, the rebuke of the wicked. And 22 through 23, the closing warning and promise. So we see at the beginning of this, of this psalm, God calls the earth uh, for judgment. And we've already read verse 4 uh, again. He, he says, he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. That's the purpose for his coming in this psalm. But you notice that he doesn't say that. He doesn't state his purpose in verse 4, uh, until verse 4. The first three verses of this psalm are emphasizing that, that God is coming and he's coming in power. Look at the first three verses once again here in Psalm 50. And notice that the powerful language that is being used here. It says, The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun Unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. You notice that there is this great judgment, there's this great power that is being spoken of here. God is coming in power. We wonder why exactly. Is there so much emphasis on the fact that God is coming to judge, but he's coming with all this, this mighty power, the sovereign power over the universe? Well, one, one reason that, that God's power is emphasized may certainly be that uh, we may understand that God has the ability to judge and to execute his judgments. But we're going to see as we go forward, there is a specific reason that, that God is emphasizing this power here, and it has to do with how he is relating to his people. We, we go on in verse 4, we see the rebuke of the saints. We start to see the reason that God is coming, uh, not, to, ju- not just to judge his enemies, but to judge his people. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And this is what he says. He says, gather my saints together unto me, 
those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness again, for God is judge himself. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. We find in verse 8, we start to get the clues as to why God is judging his people. We see here that God is coming to rebuke his people, and it's for not just their sins in general, but for a specific sin that they've committed. And we start to get that clues for that, of what that is in verse 8. He says this curious thing. He says, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or for thy burnt offerings, which are before me continually. And that's kind of odd. We see this, this negative statement. He says, I am not rebuking you for your sacrifices. And we find that odd because if we, again, going back to the analogy of our own children, if we discipline our children and sit them down, we don't list them all the reasons why we're not disciplining them. If they've been fighting with their, with their siblings, we don't, tell you, well, I'm not dis- we don't tell them, well, I'm not disciplining you for your lying or for your stealing, for any of these other things. And so why does, why does God start out with this negative? Why does he say, I am not judging you for your sacrifices? Well, as we'll find, he's saying that he's not re- rebuking them uh, because their sacrifices are too little. Uh, if God comes in judgment, his people might be tempted to think that, oh, we're not offering enough sacrifices. But actually, we see in the, in the end of this verse, the reverse is the problem. Their, their, their sacrifices are continually before God. And so they're offering all these sacrifices, but as we continue reading, we realize that they're offering them without any feeling. Look at verse 9 as we continue to read. He says, I will take no bull out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. And he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? What's God saying here? He's saying that their sacrifices are before him continually. But they've kind of slipped into this sort of ritualistic worship. Instead of offering their sacrifices with feeling, it seems that they think, and we find this especially in verse, uh, in verse 12, they, they think that they're giving something to God. They think that they're giving a, a, something special to God that he doesn't have. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell thee. And the implication here is, is in their sacrifices, they think that they're feeding God, that they're actually offering him something that he didn't have to begin with. And that makes sense because a lot of the pagan um, nations around them probably had beliefs like this. We see in a lot of the ancient pagan religions, the reason that they offered sacrifices was to appease their God, was to strengthen their God. I think that was the case with the Aztecs in South America. They offered human sacrifices so that they would feed their God and strengthen him so that he would fight against the, the, the rival demigod who was, who was evil. And this is what the Israelites were starting to think. They were thinking that they had to give sacrifices to God so that he could be stronger or so that he would have a gift from them that he hadn't had before. They were, they were giving these sacrifices, and they were giving them in abundance, but they were doing so in ignorance. And they were doing so uh, without, without really feeling it. And we see that in verse 14. God has to tell them, uh, offer unto God thanksgiving. And it's very fitting. We have this, this week of, of thanksgiving. And so often it can become easy for us as Christians to just come to church, to do all this worship, 
And yet we're doing it without feeling, without thanksgiving. Somehow, subconsciously, we slip into this idea that we can just sing the praises of God without really meaning them in our hearts, and that God will be pleased with that. We see from this passage that the Israelites were offering displeasing uh, sacrifice because they were doing so in hypocrisy. They were, they were proclaiming with their mouths that they loved God. But they had slipped into this very ritualistic and empty worship. And this is why God tells them in this, the very famous verse, every, uh, verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. He tells them, I don't need your sacrifices. They don't do anything for me. They don't give anything to me that I don't already have. I don't need your bulls and your goats. I have all the fullness of all the world. So I don't need these things that you're giving to me. What I want, what I desire, is to have your heart. Again, in verse 14. He doesn't want these these sacrifices. It says, offer to God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. What's he saying here? He's saying, I don't need your sacrifices. You've gotten into this weird idea where you you think I just need the empty act of your sacrifices. But God is saying, I want your hearts as well. That's what I really want. And so we see here that, that... He is rebuking the children of Israel for a serious sin here. They've fallen into this this, uh, hypocrisy, into this empty and and false worship. And and from this, I think we can take our first application, and that is that we as Christians need to remember that, that God doesn't just want us to come to church on Sunday. God doesn't just want us to call ourselves Christians. God doesn't want our empty worship, what he wants is our hearts to be in line with him. What he wants is for us to mean the words that we sing, to truly love him, to offer to God thanksgiving. And this week is a perfect uh, perfect week to do that, isn't it? I think that a lot of times um, the holidays kind of become empty and they they kind of just become a time to to fellowship together. And that's, that's a good thing. But, but we call this, this holiday Thanksgiving, and who are we giving thanks to? Well, we're giving thanks to the Lord, and we shouldn't just do that in name. Um, we shouldn't just say emptily that, oh, we are, we are thankful to God. We should truly mean it in our hearts. We should look around at the blessings that God has given us and be thankful for them truly, and not just in word. And so we see here, the first application is our, our worship must be pure and entire, and not just in name only. What I really want to, and that's important, that's, that's not an unimportant thing, and, and this is, that's really a large part of the psalm, but what I really want to emphasize this morning is that in spite of Israel's serious sin, and again, this, this, this vain, empty worship is a serious sin, in spite of this, notice the way that God talks to his people. They, they've, they've violated his rules, they have not worshipped him as he desires, they have they have perceived him wrongly as a God who needs their gifts. And so he corrects them. He comes in judgment. But notice how he talks about his people here. Look at verse 4. Going, we're, we're backtracking a little here. Verse 4, he says, again, he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge. Notice, despite that they, the fact that they have sinned, he still calls them his people. He's come to judge his people. We see the same thing in verse 5 as well. He says, speaking to the heavens and the earth, gather my saints together to me. 
If you've heard the Hebrew word hesed, that's the 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 that's the this word right here. It's the ones who practice steadfast love. We we see that word a lot in the Psalms, steadfast love or loving kindness in the older versions. And that's that's the word here. It's those who practice loving kindness with God, those who have uh, uh, made a covenant with me by sacrifice. We see in verse 7 again, Hear, O my people, God's still calling them his people, I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. And then the end of verse 7, I am God, even thy God. And notice what's, what's going on here. Again, the people of Israel, they have sinned in a serious way. They have offered wrong worship to God. And yet he does not cast them off. He does not say, well, you, you messed up, you're out of here. You're not my people anymore. You're not my children anymore. But rather, even in spite of their sin, he still calls them my people, my saints. He still calls himself uh, our God in spite of our sin. And as we're going to see in, in a couple minutes, this is in a stark contrast to the way that God deals with his enemies. God calls us, even in spite of our sin, even the fact that we, we are, are struggle with sin and, and we, we struggle with, with besetting transgressions, despite that, God still calls us his people. And what are we to take from this? Well, I think that um, a lot of times teachers and preachers can be too quick to say, uh, if you're struggling with ABC, XYZ areas in your life, if you're not doing this, this, and that, then maybe you need to re-examine whether or not you're truly a Christian. And certainly there is a place in the Christian life for evaluating ourselves, for um, making, as, as the Bible says, making our calling an election sure. There are times in our lives where we should step back, uh, especially as I know you all will observe the Lord's Supper next week, there are times when we should step back and examine whether or not we are truly in the faith. But I think that it can be unhelpful to, every time we struggle with a sin, every time we fall short of the glory of God, I think it's, it can be hurtful to, every time that happens, think that, oh, maybe we're not Christians. Every time we, we break God's law, think, oh, maybe I'm not actually in the faith. And as we'll see a little bit later, if we are constantly sinning, if we have no regard for the law of God, if we, if we cast God's statutes behind us, then maybe, maybe we have cause for, for that reevaluation. But if we are loving God's word, if we, are, if we are keeping in God's word, if we are trying to conform our lives to the Bible, and yet we are struggling with our sin nature, we should not, because of that struggle, think that we are outside of the faith or outside of God's true people. Because when, when God judges his people, he doesn't say, uh, be careful, you're, you're not going to be my people anymore. Rather, he, he comes in and tells his people that they should order their conduct rightly because they're his saints, because he is their God. I think that sometimes when we doubt our salvation too much because of our sin, when we have this overemphasis every time we sin upon evaluating whether or not we're truly Christians, I think it can be counterproductive because it can go in one of two ways. Either we try to confirm our salvation and confirm that we are in the faith, 
and lose sight of that sin that we had committed. Once we find assurance, once we evaluate ourselves, say, yes, I truly love the Lord, uh, we can sometimes forget that sin that has caused us to reevaluate ourselves in that way and, and kind of leave it un, unattended. Or the other way it could go is that we uh, overemphasize our, our repentance in such a way that we try to earn our assurance of salvation by turning from our sins. Now, certainly, when we find sin in our lives, we want to make sure that we do repent of that sin. But we shouldn't try to earn our salvation or earn our, assur- our assurance of salvation by repentance. Rather, when we sin, if we are sincere, if we, we know that we love the Lord, if we know that we love his law, if we know that we're, walk- we're trying to walk in his statutes every day, even though we, we slip now and then, we should not always be reevaluating whether or not we're truly saved. We should say, we should look at ourselves, and we should say, yes, I am a member of God's covenant. I am a Christian. I know that I love the Lord. And even though I've transgressed, it's because I love the Lord and because I know that I'm a Christian that I'm going to try and order my conduct aright. And another thing I think that we need to take from this psalm is that when we do mess up, and we're eventually going to mess up, we'll all go out of here today and we'll sin in thought, word, and deed, whether today or tomorrow or this week. But when we do mess up inevitably, we should not think that, that God is angry with us, that God is going to cast us off because of our sin. And notice the wording again that God is using. He, he calls Israel his people who are in covenant with him and his saints. And this is in spite of the fact that they have committed, again, a serious sin, a serious sin in their worship. God still calls them his people. He's not angry with them. He's he's rebuking them so that they might turn and, and come back to him. And as soon as they do, he will embrace them with open arms. As we'll see uh, later down uh, in this this psalm uh, very soon, the the wicked think that God is like them. And sometimes we in our lives can adopt this as well. We can think that God is like us. And when someone sins against us, what do we do? We We want some time. We want some space. We don't want to see that person right away. If someone has lied to us, if someone has, has stolen from us or been unkind to us, we don't, we don't really want to deal with them right now. Even if they apologize, we kind of want to hold them at arm's distance. And because of that, we think that that's how God deals with us as well, that when we sin, when we violate his law, he, he doesn't want to see us right now. Even if we repent, we have to wait a while to kind of prove that we have uh, repented, kind of prove that we uh, don't like that sin anymore, that we, that we are turning from that sin. Because of that, oftentimes when we are struggling with sin, we can, we can lose that, that sense of that relationship with God, and that can be very, very harmful to us. We can feel like we are completely cut off from God, but God clearly shows here that as soon as we repent, he is accepting of us, because we are his, his people, we are his saints. When I say that God is not angry with us when we sin, I'm not trying to Uh, undersell the seriousness of sin. I've tried to say it multiple times this morning. What Israel did was serious sin. And we in our lives are capable of serious sin. But the point I'm trying to make is that even when we sin, when we repent, God is willing to accept us back to himself. God is willing to forgive us our sin and call us his people and call himself our God. 
So after we sin, we don't need to feel like we, we have to hold God at arm's length or like God is holding us at arm's length. God accepts us immediately. When we think about this. One day we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. One day God is going to, uh, on his right hand, hold the sheep and on the, his left hand, hold the goats. And at that day, we, we, will, have, we will have died or, or God will have come again and received us to himself. And we will be perfected in glory. We will have no more sin within us. We will be totally sanctified, if you will. But in that moment when, God, when Christ looks at us and says to his people, enter into the joy of thy Lord. On that day when God declares that to us, we will be no more forgiven than we are right now. We will be more sanctified. We will not have the sin that is, is still within us. We will not have that sin nature anymore. But we will be no more forgiven, no more justified that day than we are right now. Than we are the, the second after we commit sin and repent of it. As soon as, as we commit sin and repent of it, and even because we're Christians, even right after we, we commit a sin and even before we repent of it, we are as forgiven then as we will be in the future, when, when God tells us, when Christ tells us to enter into the joy of our Lord, we'll be no more forgiven then than we are now. And so we can take comfort in that, to immediately repent of our sins. When we, when we sin, we don't have to feel like we're severed from our relationship with God, but we can know that God has already forgiven us if we're resting in Christ, and that we're no more forgiven than we will be in heaven. And quickly, this is a stark contrast with the way that God treats his enemies. Look at verse 16. God says, or the psalmist says, but unto the wicked, God says, what have you to do to declare my statutes or that you should take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? And notice God has, has spoken tenderly to his people. He, he's rebuked them sharply. But he's comforted them by reminding them that they are his people still. But to the wicked, he does not speak this way. And you should see a sharp contrast here between how God does treat, as I just said, the sheep and the goats. God says to those who are claiming to be Christians or in this Old Testament context, they're claiming to be Israelites. He's saying, what right have you to call yourself my people? Because you hate instruction, in verse 17, and cast my words behind you. And then we see this list of sins that these people commit. When you saw a thief, you consented with him. And the literal sense here is you made friends with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will reprove you and set them in order before your eyes. Now you notice here the difference in the way that God treats his people and the way that God treats his enemies. Certainly if there are any in here this morning who are only what we would call a nominal Christian, only someone who, who comes to church on Sundays and then goes and lives like the rest of the world. Certainly, this is a call to repentance. God says, if you hate his, his law, if you hate his instructions, what right have you to call yourself a Christian? 
If you live like the world, if you hate God's law, if you don't pay attention to it, if you live however the way that you want to and just pretend and play act as a Christian, and this is certainly a warning to you this morning to repent of that and to truly ask God to forgive your sins and to truly be and act a Christian. But as, as those who are resting in Christ this morning, those who are uh, trying to live as God would have us, it's a comfort because God doesn't speak this way to us. If we love God's law, even when we mess up, notice that the people of Israel, they, they did sin. That's, that's, we're not underemphasizing that. They did sin. But because they, they were trying to live in a way that is in accordance with God's law, even though they messed up, God speaks to them comfortly, comfortingly, not in the way that he speaks to the wicked. Then we see in the last couple verses here, we see kind of the whole psalm summed up in short. Now consider this, you that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. We see again that warning to the wicked. That if you forget God, that, that there will be judgment, that there will be consequences. But then once again, we get this, this wonderful word of comfort to God's people. He says, whoever offers praise glorifies me. And him that orders his, his way aright, will I show the salvation of God. This is a wonderful comfort to us. Because we, as Christians today, as, as people with sin natures, we struggle with sin so much. We struggle with our, our besetting sins, with our temptations. We fall into temptation again in, in thought, word, and deed. We think wrong things, we say uh, wrong things, and, and we do wrong things. And again, sometimes we think that because of this, God hates us, at least, at least for a while. Because just like we need time from, from those who have sinned against us, God needs time away from us. God needs us to show, show him that, that we really are true about our repentance. The psalmist here says, no, God is, is calling us unto himself. If we love God's law, if we are trying to walk in his statutes, then God accepts us as soon as we repent. And we are, again, no more forgiven than we will be on that great day. And so in some, the application this morning is as... Uh, we already saw um, a while ago, we, we need to make sure that our, our, our worship is not um, empty, that it's not hollow. We need to have feeling within our worship. But we know that if we sin in this way, or if we sin in any other way, we can come to God as people who belong to him. Not thinking every time we sin that, that we have to uh, be saved again or, or, we, or not outs- we're outside of God's people. We come to him in repentance as those who are part of his people, knowing that he will forgive us immediately. And having comfort that God doesn't treat us as he does his enemies. We see how God treats his enemies. And it's not the same way that God treats us. We see that whoever glorifies God, even if there are any in here who are the enemies of God this morning, then you can come to him through Christ. You can receive the forgiveness. You can be treated as a saint of God this morning. But I call all of you who are resting in Christ, when you sin, when you mess up, when you make a mistake, don't, don't be hesitant to come to God in repentance. Because God will accept you as, as soon as you repent, as soon as you cast off that sin. God has accepted you and you are of his people. And so we don't have to be afraid that God is angry with us, that God hates us, that we've screwed up too much. We can have assurance of pardon as we read this morning that whoever confesses his sin 
and renounces it will find mercy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here once again. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this wonderful psalm that we've heard this morning. Lord, I pray that as we live our lives, as we try to follow your word, and yet as we sin in thought, word, and deed, that we would not be discouraged. But because you have forgiven us, because we are your saints, we would be quick to renounce our sin and rush runningly, and to rush into your arms that are open for us and to know that we don't have to stay away from you after we've sinned. We can repent immediately and we can, again, feel that fellowship that we have with God and with your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that you'd bless the rest of this day. Help us to worship and glorify you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we'll sing the hymn of response, uh, More Love love to Thee, O Christ, hymn 649, verses 1 and 2.